Every sport, hobby, or special interest has insider terms in history. The more you know the backstory of them, the more you'll understand and enjoy the activity. The Bible's no different. The more you understand the foundational items in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, the more the rest of the Bible will make sense. We'll talk about some of them in our lesson today that is longer and more complex than some, but I trust you'll agree it's worth it in your understanding of the Bible. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our lesson today is entitled, The Backstory of Jesus, Old Testament Tabernacle, Sacrifices, and Festivals, Foundation for Understanding the Rest of the Bible. After Jesus rose from the dead, he walked with and had dinner with some disciples. Luke says they were kept from recognizing who he was. They were distraught because Jesus had been crucified. And it's the third day, they said. And I imagine Jesus kind of had to chuckle a little bit to himself. But anyway, they talked about how they'd hoped that he was the Messiah. Jesus didn't rebuke them, but it says, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is in Luke 24:27. In the book of Matthew, passage after passage includes a phrase similar to this one. Again, quote, this was to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, unquote, in Matthew 4.14. Again and again, in writings about and by the Apostle Paul, we find statements like this. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and proving the Christ would have to suffer. Now let's pause a minute before continuing. We can read passages like these and not think much of them, but we need to realize how extraordinary they are. This is because they're part of the body of proof that our Bibles are indeed the very Word of God, written ultimately by one author, God himself, consisting of one story from beginning to end. If that is the case, why don't most people see it? They don't see it because of the seemingly small but truly dangerous habit of reading the Bible in bits and pieces. It is dangerous because if you only read the Bible in bits and pieces, you won't see the Bible as a whole by one author. Or, if you just take the word of scholars, quote-unquote, and I use the quote marks intentionally because their work is based more on fanciful fabrications than consistent historical analysis. If you do this, you might chop the Bible up into totally unsubstantiated, quote, source documents, such as the now disproven, but for a time quite unsettling, something that was called the JEDP hypothesis for the Old Testament that suggested, instead of Moses, as the one author of the Pentateuch, that a variety of authors wrote it at various times, or the Jesus Seminar deciding what parts of the New Testament they feel Jesus truly said, and based simply on what they feel is true. In every case like these, chopping up the Bible, reading in bits and pieces, results in an incorrect view of it, and one that is ultimately dangerous and destructive to your spiritual life and eternal soul. The proper solution to the view of the Bible is what we are doing now, reading the Bible in chronological order, but also looking at the entire Bible 
as we read the early parts of it. Now, this isn't an easy process, looking at the, the beginning, the end, and the different parts in between, but these lessons will help you do it. I'm going to do that for you. This is so important because when you see really see and understand the Bible as one unified story, when you see how all the parts are woven together, and when you pair that with the historical facts of the dates when the Bible was written, the only conclusion you can come to is that the God who exists outside of time is the author of it. Now, I have a chart on God's view of time that will help you understand it. It has, um, it, overall, it has sort of a line on the top that says God's view of time and how he is simultaneously aware of and knows all that is past, present, and future. And then I have the line below that shows you the Old Testament history, New Testament, our lives, and the glorious future to come. God sees all of this we are only in one little part of time. Now, when we realize that God sees all of it, knows all of it, then we can understand that because God is outside of time and knew what would happen in the New Testament future, he could speak correctly about it in the Old Testament. We call that prophecy, but it's simply God speaking of all of human history just from his viewpoint, proving he is the ultimate author of the entire Bible. That's why we talked about typology in our last lesson, and while we'll discuss it more this week. Typology is where there is a picture of something early in the timeline of the Bible that, though meaningful in itself at that time, will have a more complete fulfillment and often an additional expansion in the meaning later. We'll look at many things in the Old Testament tabernacle, sacrifices, and festivals that illustrate what I just said. Again, only one author composing the story of the Bible outside of time could accomplish this. For a sure foundation, trust in the Bible and our God and the peace that comes with those things is the goal of this lesson. This is not just an apologetic exercise, but it is for your assurance of what you've committed your life to for you in the dark nights of your soul. So let's get into some of the specifics now. Now the significance of the fulfillment in the New Testament about the Messiah, I'm going to read you some quotes from a really great book, A Survey of the Old Testament Introduction by Gleason L. Archer. Now this probably isn't something that you want to just cozy up to and read. It's a scholarly, uh, seminary level book, but I want to give you a few quotes out of it that I think you'll find really helpful on the concerning the topic that we're talking about. And I quote, In general, we may say that the Old Testament presented the preparation of which the New Testament was a fulfillment. It was the seed and plan of which the New Testament was the glorious fruit. Precisely because Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled what the Old Testament predicted, his life and deeds possessed absolute finality, rather than his being merely a religious sage like many others. For this reason also, the gospel of Christ possesses divine validity, which sets it apart from all man-made religions. That is such an important statement. You see, no other religion 
has this predictive prophecy and then the fulfillment of these prophecies thousands of years later within one sacred book. Archer goes on to say, the other books may contain wise sayings, but again, none of them have this millennia of prophetic fulfillment to validate their authority. The book goes on to say, the New Testament writers view the entirety of Hebrew scriptures as a testimony to Jesus Christ, the perfect man who fulfilled all the law, the sacrifice and high priest of ritual ordinances, the prophet, priest, and king of who the prophets foretold. The Old Testament demonstrates that Jesus and his church were providential, the embodiment of the purpose of God. The New Testament proves that the Hebrew scriptures constituted a coherent and integrated organism focused upon a single great theme and exhibiting a single program of redemption. With that as background and how we can understand it as the backstory of Jesus, we want to now look at the tabernacle, the furnishings, the sacrifices, and the festivals, because they're going to illustrate all of this. Again, it's like I said in the introduction, any other area of expertise, sports, cooking, various careers, each area has its past heroes, its lingo, its shortcut terms. The Bible's no different, and the rest of the Bible following the Old Testament will refer to the things we're going to talk about, to the items and the events that are discussed earlier early in the book, always with the coming Messiah, with Jesus in mind. Now let's start by looking at why the exactness of the tabernacle, its furnishings, and all the regulations surrounding them were desperately needed for the people at that time. Now, people we know are innately religious, but the form it takes may not be what God wants. Israel needed a God-provided place of worship. While they were in Egypt, the children of Israel most likely practiced some sort of sacrifice, as sacrificing to Jehovah goes back to the earliest days of humanity. We find Cain and Abel did it, and it continued throughout, as mentioned in various places. Their religion was always later on spoken of as coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just from Moses, so they were doing different things prior to that. However, However, their religion would have been unorganized and not at all what God wanted. The regulations in Leviticus that come later actually give us a hint of what was probably going on, where it says they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols or to demons whom they prostitute to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for generations to come. Sacrificing to demons? What in the world was that about? It does seem amazing, but apparently they were doing things like this prior to God giving them the specific laws that he did. I'm going to read you a quote from the Jewish Quarterly Review that actually goes into great deal on this. It was entitled, The Religion of Israel Before Sinai, and it clarifies the background and the setting of this verse that I just read you. And here's what it says. In the law of Leviticus, Sarium are thus demons of the wilderness, conceived in popular superstition as hairy beings or in the shape of 
he-goats, something like the satyrs in Greek mythology or the fauns in Roman mythology. To these demons, Israelites offered sacrifices, evidently with the object of securing their goodwill or of guarding against their enmity. These demonic sacrifices are most probably identical with the sacrifices to the Sedim, demons or devils, which Israel is accused of having offered in the Song of Moses, where it says in Deuteronomy 32, they sacrifice to Sedim, no gods, divinities whom they know not, new ones that have come newly up, whom their fathers feared not. There are other evidences, too, that we have of what they previously considered, quote-unquote, worship. When Moses didn't come down from the mountain as quickly as they expected, and we need to remember that it is a pattern of sin, that sin often results from impatience, they immediately turn to making an idol and engaging in, quote-unquote, worship that included eating, drinking, dancing, and revelry. Now, one could assume from this that this was the sort of worship they were accustomed to, as this was what was considered worship in many pagan societies. But that is not how God wanted to be worshipped. And so he gives them specific instructions on what they're to do and where they are to do it. First of all, he gives them instructions for the tabernacle. This was the place where God can physically dwell with his people. This was the tent that was set, a very elaborate tent, there in the desert. And they were also, not only was it a place where God would dwell with his people, but they were constantly reminded of his presence. The instructions given in the Bible are so detailed. We have a clear idea of what it looked like, and there are many reproductions of it and also of the tabernacle furnishings available for you to look at today. Now, the source of the images that I'm going to be showing you on the video, I'm going to describe them to you in the podcast, and that I really recommend, if you're teaching a class on this, that you get these books for yourselves. The first one is the Rose Book of Bible Charts, Maps, and Timelines. It's by Rose Publishing, and it's really good. just has some great pictures of things. And then also, Gospel Light has a book entitled Reproducible Maps, Charts, Timelines, and illustrations. It's out of print, but you can get it on Amazon. I checked. There's there's a lot of copies available. And I strongly recommend that you get these books to make reproductions for people if you're teaching a class or just for your own use. They're really, really good. But first of all, let's look at how the temple was arranged. Now, you had this outer um, sort of fence around it. It was a beautiful, really strong woven fabric. And then you had the tabernacle itself inside it. I'll describe some of the other items in a little bit. But the entire structure was about 150 feet long fifty and 50 feet wide. The most holy place was the sort of tabernacle itself was 35 feet long and 15 feet wide. It really wasn't very big at all. The entire structure, and I have an illustration of it on the video, was less than about a quarter of the size of a modern day football field. That kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of the size of it. 
The tabernacle furnishings consisted, first of all, you came to the bronze altar. This was about seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and about four and a half feet tall. This was where the sacrifices took place, and it signified the necessity to shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, and it came first because we must first be cleansed of our sins before we can approach a holy God. It was a temporary covering, though, looking to Jesus to be the looking ahead to Jesus as the final sacrifice. Now there are many passages in the Bible that refer to it, but the Book of Hebrews, if you really want to know more about the fulfillment of it, is a detailed explanation of how Jesus fulfilled all of what we will talk about in the tabernacle and how he was the final sacrifice. Now, the, there were various sacrifices that took place on the altar. There was the sin offering. Isaiah talks about this in conjunction with Jesus when it says, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. It specifically was pointing to the Messiah. In Matthew 20, 28, we have the fulfillment of it where it talks about how Jesus gave his life as a ransom. Another use of these offerings is only a portion was burnt up, and that was because the rest of the meat that was offered was given to the Levites. That's how they're fed from their work. And so it's also used as an example of how Christian workers are to be fed from their work. Then there was the burnt offering. This was a complete sacrifice illustrating how Jesus gave his all. And that's what our lives are supposed to be as an offering to God. This is a sacrifice referred to in Romans 12.1 where it talks about to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There was a grain offering. This is a sacrifice of praise, of sharing with others, and that applies to all believers now and then that sometimes it is a real sacrifice to praise God, but we're to do it in whatever our situation is. And then the fellowship offering. This sacrifice looked forward to sharing life with Christ, more than just salvation from damnation, but a continuing loving relationship, feasting with God, and we'll also see this in the table of the showbread. Then the other items, as you progress towards the most holy place, we have the bronze laver. And this was where the priests had to wash every time they made an offering. This illustrated the need for purity for God's people as they live and do ministry. Going forward, though we're now saved and a kingdom of priests, we need to be continually cleansed by Jesus. And there are two ways that this is done. One, through the word of God. Christ said, now you are clean through the word I've spoken to you. And then second, through confession and forgiveness. First John 1 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess God forgives. We're also reminded in this looks forward to it and reminded of Jesus' example of washing the feet of his disciples. That's a continuing reminder of how we are servants as his followers, as believers.
Then there was a golden lampstand. It was the only source of light in the tabernacle. It symbolized how the coming Messiah, Jesus, would be the light of the world. And we're also commanded to be lights in our world and not hide our light. Then there was the table of showbread. The fine flour that the bread was made of speaks of the sinless nature of Christ. And Jesus, of course, identifies himself as the bread of life. Once again, it speaks of fellowship. And it's just unbelievable to me how our Lord actually desires fellowship with us. In Revelation 3.20, there's that wonderful verse. And remember, the door in the, in the great painting of it, there's no knob on the outside. It has to be open from the inside. But Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus spent a lot of time eating with his disciples, and sharing food together is an important part of his church and his people. And again, that Jesus wants to do that, desires to share with us in that way, is so extraordinary, and it was pictured from the Old Testament on. Other items, we have the altar of incense. This is often referred to as an, um, an illustration of our prayers. It was a vital part of worship and was to, con to be offered continuously. And then there was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It could not be accessed directly. You couldn't just go through it. It blocked the door. The high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies from the side. This is the veil that later in the temple of Jerusalem, it says, was torn from top to bottom by the hand of God when Jesus died on the cross because now people had full access to God. Now, the most significant thing, of course, in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant in the whole, not in the temple, in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. After it was dedicated, only the high priest could approach it once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on the top of the chest. Blood was shed, sprinkled on it. God could then look with mercy on covered sins, covered by the blood. Again, though this covering was only temporary and it had to be repeated again and again, but in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews makes clear that the death of Christ was the final sacrifice, the final blood shed, and no longer were animal sacrifices necessary. One additional note. Now, unlike its presentation in popular culture and uh, late Raiders of the Lost Ark and other things, um, and superstitious views of people in the Old Testament that you're going to see later, the Ark itself was not a vessel of power. Its importance is in what it pictured about the coming final atonement of Jesus, where his blood would forever cover and pay the price of our sins.
A summary passage is in Hebrews 9, 11-14, where it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, there are many representations of this in popular culture. Um, Museums in different places have done representations of it. But I did want to point out, and again, showing you this on the video, that some of the handouts, a number of the things refer to how the items that were made in the temple are many of them are similar to some of the things they found in King Tut's treasures and that is true and I have pictures of them some of the um, breastplates that uh, were in King Tut's treasures we can see how the ones for the high priest were modeled after them the gold carvings and even this covered box with the poles inserted in it and what this just shows us is God uses contemporary styles and skills for his glory. His work is not some strange otherworldly creation. He took the styles of the way people did beautiful things at that time, transformed them, and used them for his worship. Now then comes the feasts, and these are quite wonderful. Um, There's a number of them throughout the year, and God commanded people to take time to observe the feasts, to celebrate. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through the major ones. I'll first name the feast. I'll tell you its contemporary meaning or the reason that Israel celebrated it. Then how it was or will be fulfilled in the life of Jesus in the church. And then for a few, I have some additional comments. The first one was Passover. Now the contemporary meaning to Israel was it meant it was a celebration of their redemption from Egypt. It was fulfilled, of course, through Christ's crucifixion. And remember that the Last Supper was actually a Passover celebration. First fruits. Now the contemporary meaning to Israel is it celebrated the first grain harvest. And it was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ, the first to rise from the dead, and we will rise also. Next, 50 days later, came the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. The contemporary meaning or celebration for Israel was the ingathering of the first harvest. It signified God's provision for them. And of course, it was fulfilled in a wonderful way. 50 days after the resurrection, we have the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church. And the feasts continue. First, the Feast of the Trumpets, the contemporary meaning to Israel. It was a solemn assembly when the trumpets blow to prepare for the Day of Atonement, and it will be fulfilled with Christ's second coming. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the contemporary meaning for Israel was it was a solemn assembly for the forgiveness of sins. And it will be fulfilled, biblical scholars tell us, when Israel returns to her Messiah. 
And then finally, the Feast of Booths as the schedule of celebrations. The contemporary meaning for Israel was the final harvest, and it will be fulfilled for all of us in the coming kingdom of God on earth. But then we have one other thing, the Sabbath, the weekly sign of God's covenant, our rest from our works in Jesus. It's a sign of ongoing grace. Now, just I wanted to say just a little bit more about the Sabbath, the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee. The underlying truth in all of these, that they were to be times to trust God. They were supposed to be observed by resting, not working, canceling debts, returning the land to the original owners, and other acts of trust. Ultimately, they're illustrations of grace, God's totally unmerited favor to us. For them and for us, it's a way to express our trust in God's grace by merely being still, by resting. We rest outwardly to signify our inner trust in God's grace for our salvation. That is ultimately how the Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus. He is the final solution to all our striving, all our work to make ourselves right with God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, says the old hymn, and trusting him completely for our salvation is the true observance of the Sabbath. When Jesus came, the meticulous rules that we've talked about, all the rituals, the observations, they're no longer important or necessary. They were, again, just a picture of what was to come in Jesus. Trying to observe all sorts of legalistic rules after Jesus came and fulfilled the law, what the law looked forward to was and is a denial of his life death, and resurrection, as the book of Galatians explains in much more detail, and why the Jews of today try so hard with their Sabbath observations. They're still trying to earn God's favor. They're trying to look ahead, but they don't need to, which is so sad. They no longer apply to us as believers. That's why it's okay to heal, to do good, to observe a different day of rest, worship, and praise than strictly the Jewish Sabbath. Again, all of that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, what do we learn from all of this? All these things truly make up the backstory for Jesus. His life, death, resurrection, creation of the church, and return for his people fulfilled and will fulfill what these were pictures of. It makes sense to us now as we see the finished work of Christ being part of the church and look forward to his coming return. But think how different it must have been to them who first heard this. Their previous sacrifices and worship style. We mentioned how they sacrificed to demons in Leviticus 17.17. They were sacrifices of fear and pleading for protection. No praise, no thanksgiving, just fear. When Moses didn't come back for 40 days, they immediately constructed a golden calf and engaged in drunken immorality. What kind of religions were these? First, one of fear and placating evil spirits. Second, one of serving gods they made of self-indulgence. Both approaches, quite honestly, are so similar to what people, many people try today. 
But neither way of worship worked then, and it doesn't work now. A groveling fear of God or a worship that's all about me and doing what I want to do, what makes me feel good, neither of these are true worship of God. Again, though many try these things today. C.S. Lewis said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly wouldn't recommend Christianity. And as ancient Israel couldn't serve God in the ways they wanted, we can't either. Lewis goes on to say, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you've not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. The amazing thing is that when we give ourselves to God, when we worship as he wants, for the people that back then and for us now, that's when we find what we've always wanted, what we've always longed for. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you'd never seen a key. The key itself a strange thing if you'd never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance, a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. We become what we were created to be, what will make us most happy and fulfilled when we trust God and follow His ways and worship in the way He wants. It's a story that hasn't changed from the earliest days of God calling a people out of Egypt to us today. In closing, I trust in this lesson you caught a glimpse of the unity of the grand story of the Bible and how the Old Testament forms the backstory of Jesus, that he wasn't simply an inspiring person who appeared and died a tragic death, but the fulfillment of pictures and promises from the earliest days of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible is a story of the God who loves beyond all we can imagine, is working out the plot line of redemption for his creation, who turned their back on him and the perfect world he created for them. It's about how God worked through the centuries, telling the story bit by bit, assembling a people, his word, sending his son to be the final sacrifice, and calling out a people that now includes you and me.
It's not only Jesus' backstory, but ours as well. And my prayer for all of us is that in our words and actions that we share God's ongoing story of love and salvation truly and well. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.